and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad that you could join us today as we continue our study together through the Gospel of John. Today we'll be in the 15th chapter of John. Uh, in my view of it, this is one of the most uh, poetic and beautiful uh, pictures of our relationship with Christ as he explains his relationship with the disciples here in the 15th chapter. And uh, the, just the imagery and the history of it is, is just a really rich text. And I'm glad you could join us as we begin to study it together. It also holds some challenges for us. And uh, I hope you'll be along for that ride as well as each one of us should be challenged by an encounter with God's word. Well, again, thanks for joining us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer and then we will turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us the, the mental capacity to be able to study, to understand. Father, we thank you for that spiritual longing in our lives that reaches out for something beyond ourselves. Father, you created us to desire after you, and we do. And Lord, I thank you that you promise that when we seek after you, you will be found that we have that promise, that hope of glory and of redemption, of eternal life in you. Father, most of all, I thank you for Jesus the Christ, for the salvation that he brings, and for our relationship with you through him. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we move into the 15th chapter of John, again, we put the chapter breaks in there. They weren't originally in John's gospel. Uh, it's a continuation of the story. It's the, the Last Supper and the discussion following it between Jesus and the disciples, kind of his last words to them, his last teaching instruction to them. So you get the idea. These are probably some really important things he's telling them, things that he wants to remind them of or enlighten them to their at the end of his earthly ministry, as he heads into the events unfolding over the next few days of his death, burial, and resurrection. So when we look at chapter 15, we need to hear it partially in that context, but we also have to hear it in the context of the history of the nation of Israel. And there's going to be references to Moses and Abraham. There's going to be references over and over again in this, because it's the illustration Jesus is using, of a vine. We'll understand throughout the Old Testament and during that first century world that this is taking place in, references to the vineyard and to vines, um, grapevines were symbolic references that usually refer, well, when they were symbolic, they always referred to the nation of Israel. Jesus is going to change that ever so slightly in this text. He's not just talking about the nation of Israel. In fact, he describes what the true vine is, and then the branches become connected to that true vine. Let's look at what he says. Chapter 15 of John's Gospel. Starting in verse one, he says, I am, and there it is, that phrase again, Jesus saying, I am. And yes, that's a claim to divinity. That is a claim to be God. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. So note, he's saying, look, Israel isn't the true grapevine. I am, and my father is the gardener that oversees the growth and care of that vine. 
I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Now, this is a huge statement and a powerful statement, but it also comes with a warning. Now, maybe you didn't catch the warning, but it's in there. We'll get to it. So Jesus is saying, I'm the vine. I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. Now, if you're going to not just have grapes grow wild, but you want to cultivate a grapevine to produce well, there's some things you're going to have to do. If there are dead branches, you're going to have to prune them off because no matter how much you take care of the vine, the dead branches will never grow or produce anything because they're, what's the word I'm looking for here? Dead. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. There are also going to be some, some shoots on there that just are ineffective. They don't do anything. Um, those are going to get pruned. You may think, well, there's a branch that's producing grapes. Yes. But you know, if you prune a healthy branch and do it properly, you can actually coax it to produce more and better fruit. Now, Jesus is using this analogy of tending a grapevine by a skilled and, and loving gardener. He's equating that to the spiritual relationship he has with the Father and that we have with him and the Father. He's the vine, we're the branches. And we need to understand that in that relationship, the branches get pruned. They've already been purified. We are those fruit-bearing branches that are tied to Christ and fed through him and sustained through him. But God is still going to prune so that we are most effective. This kind of flies in the face of, if you're right with God, everything's going to go great in your life type of mentality, which is not a biblical mentality. Sorry. Things will go great for eternity, yes, but you're going to face hardship. You're going to face challenges. God is going to let things happen in your life that test your faith, that draw you closer to him, that allow you to be a witness in the midst of suffering and adversity for his kingdom, his love, and his power. In our weakness, his strength is shown. So I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me. No, he cuts off every branch of mine. There we go. That doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit. So they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. What's the message he gave them? The message of the gospel. That message prunes and purifies us. He says, you've already been there. Then verse four, and it's that warning, if you will, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. If a grapevine branch is severed from the vine, 
then it ceases to be a living grapevine branch. We have to stay connected. So there's a bit of a warning there to not disconnect from that life found in Christ. Don't claim Christ, but lose all the life-giving vitality that comes from a relationship with him. Because if you don't have that relationship with Christ, you just have words, you have nothing. So there is a bit of a warning there. Well, Jesus goes on in verse five. He says, yes, I am. There it is again. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you will you are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my father. Hmm. What do you think of those verses? Again, they're challenging, aren't they? They should be. The challenge is to remain rooted in Christ and to understand that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You may say, well, people live their lives all the time apart from Christ. They achieve things. They achieve nothing of eternal significance. Because it is only through Christ that those things are achieved. Everything else withers and is gathered and thrown into the burn pile. It is vital to stay connected with Christ. Verse 7, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted Again, this isn't a, uh, you know, blank check from God that, oh, hey, whatever you want, just ask for it. It's yours. Bang. No, this is a, if you remain in him and he in you, then guess what sort of stuff you're going to ask God for? The stuff that lines up with his will, the stuff that is in the character and nature of Christ to ask for, because you have stayed connected to him. That connection is vital. It's everything. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. We are to be producers of fruit. Now, I don't want to oversimplify that. I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, wait. We have to be an evangelist and we have to see lots of people come to faith in Christ when we share the gospel, if we're really Christ followers. That's not what he said. Now, I'm from an evangelistic, evangelical Baptist background, and that, you know, evangelism was a huge part of my upbringing and of what is um, valued. And that's not a bad thing. But when we start looking at scripture and we start looking at this idea of bearing fruit, what we see is more than just evangelism. 
Bearing fruit is manifesting the presence of God in our lives through obedience to him and through taking on the character, as Paul described it, being transformed through the renewing of our mind, being conformed to the image of Christ, bearing spiritual fruit, the evidence in our life and our character and our behavior of the presence of the Spirit of God in us. And if we stay connected to Jesus, we're not going to be able to help but manifest the presence of the Spirit of God in us. So don't oversimplify what it is to bear fruit. It's about manifesting the presence of God in your life. Does he show when people look at you? Now, picking up in nine, it says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So he sets a standard very clearly there. If we are going to remain in Christ and remain in his love, what do we have to do? We have to obey his commands. If we say, yeah, God, that's what you want, but I want to do this over here. And we go after that. We are not manifesting love towards God. We are not manifesting love towards Christ if we disregard his commandments. Our love for Christ looks like obedience, willing obedience to him. He goes on in 11. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Okay, so if we're going to stay in love with him, in that relationship, stay in his love, how are we going to do that? We're going to do it by obeying him. What do we need to obey his commandments? And he's nice enough in verse 12 to give us the commandment. Here it is. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because as a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. So now Jesus has laid that out there. Here's the command. Here are the marching orders. Here are what you should do to remain in that love relationship. Now, I need to back up and explain a couple things uh, so that we don't go astray on this. First off, this idea of calling them friends, that's a big deal. Because prior to this, their relationship with Jesus had been that of a rabbi to his disciples, 
And understand, the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples was the relationship between a master and servants, or functionally volunteer slaves, is what disciples were to their master, in a desire to be connected with that master, in a desire to, to learn to emulate, to mimic, to, to learn everything they could from that master. Uh, that, that was the relationship. It was uh, kind of an apprentice-type relationship. And Jesus just changed that relationship. And I know lots of people have latched on to the no greater love has any man than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. And, and it gets used in a military sense and it gets used in a, uh, you know, any, any of what we want to classify as heroic activities and all sorts of things. But don't miss the point here. Jesus is saying, I love you guys. I don't see you as slaves. I see you as friends. Huge difference. And saying what love looks like among friends is sacrifice. In Christ, we see God showing humanity what genuine love is. Not a self-serving love, not an obligatory love, not a conditional love, but a love that says, I will sacrifice myself for you. Which is exactly what Christ did on the cross. And it is exactly what he's talking about here when he says, no greater love has any man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. And he's saying, you, you are my friends. If you do what I command. So when he's saying, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now I call you friends since I have told you everything the father told me. So he's expanding that relationship that he has with the father out to encompass the disciples, to encompass his followers, ultimately to encompass us. But how do we know we have that kind of relationship with Jesus? How do we know that includes us? Well, he puts a descriptor, if you will, on it. We obey his commands. And if there's any question of what those commands look like, they look like this. Love each other. Now, I want to be honest with the text here and say he is saying this in the context of the disciples when he tells them that they are to love one another. Uh, when he tells them, um, oh, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way that I have loved you. That is a, is a commandment at least at its first level of delivery and even the end of verse 17 with the love each other. He's talking about within their relationship to Christ, they should love each other. Or let me phrase that a different way in a context that maybe we would get a little better now in our modern context. Within the church, love each other. If we can't get the love of Christ right between those who are indwelled with the very spirit of Christ, we've got a problem, a big one. 
This should be the easiest place. And I know people are people. I don't like everybody. Not everybody likes me. I know there's something wrong with them. That's a joke. Um, But still, we should love each other. Why? Because we have the Spirit of Christ in us, and He says to do it. It is part of that fruit. Now, you said, well, does that mean we're not supposed to care about the rest of the people in the world? I didn't say that. Neither did Jesus. But it starts within the body of Christ. It starts within the church. It starts among the redeemed. And then it spills over. Just like when Jesus in Mark chapter 4 was at, or no, chapter 12, was asked about the greatest commandment by that expert in the law. And his response was, it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the second is like it. In other words, basically second part, you can't separate them, is love your neighbor as yourself. Well, why couldn't he have just said, love your neighbor as yourself? That's all it takes. Because you can't get to that without loving God with everything you are and everything you have. Because it is not in our fallen, sinful human nature to genuinely love in a sacrificial way. We get that through being united with Christ, through his sacrificial love. So if we are going to love each other, if we are going to love each other in the same way that he has loved us, we can only do that by staying connected to him. And then when we're able to do that, we'll also be able to love humanity. To love the world at large, to love the world that doesn't know him, to the point that we want to see eternity change for them, and we share the gospel with them. Because the truth is, we're not sharing the gospel with people if we don't love them. We're not genuinely genuinely sharing the message of the light and life of Christ. Going back to John chapter 1. If we don't love them. A lack of sharing the gospel with our lost world. A lack of pointing to Jesus is a lack of love. And like I say, we're called to get that right, starting with our relationship with other believers and then going out from there. If we can't get it right here within the walls of the church, we're not going to get it right out there. And walls, I speak metaphorically, within the body of Christ, among believers. We've got to get this right. Now, as we move into verse 18, Jesus shift gear, shifts gears a little bit. Uh, he's moving away from this, this vine and branches and remaining in him and all of that. And he shifts more into describing to the disciples what they're going to face. Because being united with Christ means we are separate from the world. It means we don't fit in with this world any longer. And... Well, that has some effect. Let's look at it. Verse 18 says, if the world hates you. So Jesus talking to his disciples. This is my command. Love each other. Next verse. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. 
The world would love you as one of its own. Now, let me just stop there. How many of us struggle in our heart of hearts with wanting the world around us to love us like one of its own? Fight against that desire. It is not godly. It plays to some of the basest desires of our nature. 19 again says this, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. But was that clear enough? If we are united with Christ, if we belong to him, then we need to understand very clearly the relationship between the world and us. It hates us. Well, Scott, that's harsh. You shouldn't say that. The world doesn't hate us just because we're believers in Christ and we seek to follow him. Yes, it does. And you know how I can tell you that? Because Jesus said it right here in the text. And why does it hate us? Because it hated him. Oh, the world didn't really hate Jesus. Really? They just tortured him, beat him, and executed him in a humiliating, painful public display because they were having an off day? The world, which has been taken captive by the lie of the enemy, the lie of Satan, the world hated Jesus first. And if we're his, if we belong to him, we're no longer part of that world. And well, as he says in the last part of verse 19, I choose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? Moving on verse 20. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if they had not come, or if I had not come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. And if I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what was written in scriptures. They hated me without cause, but I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So Jesus is laying out for them what is coming. He's already talked about laying down his own life for them and what is most important. And that is that they remain in his love and they do so by obeying his command to love one another. 
And then he gives them the warning. The world hates you. And Jesus says that because they hated Jesus. He says, look, they would have had no problem had I not declared the truth to them. Had I not done these miraculous signs, had I not shared the Father with them. But the moment that happened, they had to choose. And they chose to reject God, to reject his love, to reject a right relationship with him. And in so doing, they set themselves as enemies of God. That's not us. We are friends of God. He says it very clearly here too. And this doesn't play well in our modern world. Verse 23, anyone who hates me also hates my father. You know, I'm sorry to all the different groups out there that want to love God, want to worship God. There's one true God, but they don't acknowledge Christ. Because you don't know and love God if you don't know and love Christ. Again, you may say that, that sounds really exclusive and you're being very closed about that. No, I'm sharing with you what the text says. Same Jesus that a few chapters back said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The claims of Christ are very exclusive. There's one way to be saved, and it is through Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the lamb who was slain and rose again, dying for the sins of the world so that we may receive forgiveness and a right relationship with our creator. There's no middle ground. There's no plan B. There's no, you know, this is close enough to the truth. There is one truth. God created us for relationship with him. Our sin separates us from God, who is the source of life. So the wages, the consequence, the earnings of our sin is death, eternal separation from God, hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He loved his creation. He loved humanity enough. Well, Paul says in Romans, he demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us enough to do everything necessary to save us, even back when we didn't care. He did it because he loved us. Now, have you turned to him, responding to that love? Have you turned to him, taking hold of that forgiveness and life that he offers? Or are you rejecting him? For you, this is that moment where you choose to embrace God or reject him. And it has to be done through Christ. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to have a right relationship with God 
the creator except through Christ. Turn to him today. Don't fall into that category of being taken captive by the lie of the enemy, of rejecting God and being set up as an enemy of his instead of a friend. Don't do it. As Jesus says again, starting in 23, anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among you that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, so where it stands now, as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. So you can accept Christ or you can reject him. But you've got to make the choice. Now, that was his warning to the disciples of how the world would respond to them and to the message of the gospel, of some of the things they would have to face. But as he closes out with verses 26 and 7, which we've already read, but I'm going to read them again, in there, there's a promise. In there, there's the, yeah, you're going to face all of that, but you're not alone. It's not, well, I did it, so you need to go do it. It's, I did it, so I'm going to be there with you when you face it. Starting in 26, he says, but I will send you the advocate. The advocate? What, what's the advocate? Well, the advocate could be translated comforter or encourager or counselor. Literally, the Greek word is paraclete, but that doesn't help you out. Advocate, I think, is a pretty good descriptor. Because the power that is behind this lost and fallen world is Satan. And that's actually not a name, it's a title. It's Hebrew, it's Hasetan, the Satan. And it means the accuser. So we have our enemy, who is the accuser, And God is saying to his disciples and to us, I will send you the advocate. I mean, it's like the opposite of the accuser is the advocate. He said, I'm going to send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. And we know from reading elsewhere in scripture, the spirit of truth he's talking about is the very spirit of Christ indwelling our lives. It is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in us. Why? because we're his and because he promises to send us the advocate, the spirit of truth. And he says, he will come to you from the father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. Now, he's talking specifically to the disciples that are there with him, that have been with him since the beginning of his ministry, but that you will testify of me also needs to apply to all of us. If we know Christ as our Savior and Lord, we have the Spirit of God living in us, this advocate, this Spirit of truth that will testify about Christ to our hearts, to us, then we've got to tell others 
we must join in that testifying to who Christ is. Tell your story. Now, I've been trained, and some of you have too, in various forms of evangelism. There's all sorts of diagrams and acrostics and drawings. And I remember one that's based on the fingers of your hand. So you can just walk through the fingers of your hand and, you know, um, share the plan of salvation. There's just four spiritual laws uh, from Campus Crusade for Christ. There's EE. I mean, there's all these different tools to help us understand and reference different scriptures to help explain it to people. But the truth is every one of us that knows Christ as Savior and Lord has what we need to share the message of Christ, to testify about Jesus because we've been with him, because we have him within us. Now, what does that testifying about Jesus look like? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Here's who I was and what my condition was before coming to know Christ. I was a sinner bound for hell because it's what my sin earned me. I was apart from God. I did not know him, nor did I listen to him. Here's how I came to faith in Christ. Through other people that had that relationship with Christ, sharing his love and sharing the message of the gospel, sharing the message of God's love for me and that I could be made right with him, forgiven and called his. And now here is what he's doing in my life today. Here's what my relationship with him looks like. And here's how I seek to live for him. If you have that personal relationship with Christ, you've got all the parts you need to tell others. So just as he commanded those disciples, telling him that after they receive the advocate, the spirit of truth that comes from the father, that testifies all about Jesus. We must also testify about him. If you know Christ, make him known. It is of eternal consequence to those who need to hear the message of the gospel. Share your story. Share your faith and relationship with Christ. Share his love with this world that so desperately needs it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just turn to you and we thank you that you have called us your own, that you cause us to bear fruit, that your very spirit is at work in us, changing the way we see the world, changing the way we think, changing the desires of our heart to conform with you so that when we come before the Father in prayer, we 
We pray in a way that's consistent with you. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us and that you have empowered us to show you to the world, to testify of you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.